What's going on, folks? Thanks for hitting that download button and checking out a brand new episode of Toys and Tech of the Trade, your one-stop shop for toys, tech, and talk with some assembly required. I'm your host, Rich, and if this is the first time you're checking out an episode, first of all, welcome. Second, a bit about what we do here. Toys and Tech of the Trade is an interview series where we sit down with entrepreneurs, content creators, and just awesome folks that are on our radar and discuss the gadgets, the gear, and the tech that they use to run their businesses, create content, and of course, be more productive. Now, when it comes to the toys aspect of the interview, it's not just relegated to the usual stuff that you're used to, action figures or Gundams or Funko Pops. We look at toys in a more broad sense, meaning that if you collect jet skis, those are your toys. If you're a car enthusiast, your car is your toy. We look at toys in a broad sense because everybody's definition of toys is different to them. Plus, it breaks up a little bit of that business conversation and allows us to connect with our guests on a more personal level. Plus, who doesn't want to geek out over toys and just stuff that we collect? I know I do. With that out of the way, a little bit of housekeeping before we turn it over to this week's guest. I want to thank everybody who checked out my conversation with Nikki. Um, Really amazing, amazing feedback. Uh, Nikki was intense, man. I know he kind of banged a lot on his table at the beginning, but he was just so passionate about his message. And I really thought that it was just amazing that he would stop through and share his story with us. And so much actionable stuff came out of it. So definitely want to thank everybody for the kind words and for the support when it came to that episode. I know a lot of people have also been asking about Rageworks Podcast Productions, which I mentioned uh, previously. Uh, That is going to be our production arm that is basically going to take everything that we do with the Rageworks Podcast Network and package it up for other folks that want to either be a part of the network or want to use our editing and turnkey, you know, podcast services. It's really that simple. I know a lot of people want a podcast, don't want to deal with all the heavy lifting required, whether it's equipment or editing or publishing it on iTunes or or Apple Podcasts, I should say, or Spotify. And you know what? We do that. We do all of it so that you can focus on what's most important, which is the content. Don't let any of those roadblocks or any of those hurdles that I mentioned derail you from getting your message out there. There are so many people that have so much to say who just they get they get stuck. They get paralysis analysis between equipment and podcast hosting and 17 different YouTube videos and all this stuff. We we cut through all of that. And you deal with me one to one to help you get your podcast up and running, get you in front of many of the other shows that are on our network, allows for a lot of cross promotion, a lot of community engagement. I mean, who doesn't want a community that is into a bunch of different things checking out your show? We really pride ourselves on being not just a a one, you know, a one stop shop, but we pride ourselves on having diversity, not only in terms of our hosts, but in terms of our content. So if you're interested in checking out those services or want to discuss them further, please feel free to reach out, rich at rageworks.net. And of course, links will be in the show notes for this episode. That's going to wrap up the housekeeping. I'm going to turn it over to this week's guest, which if you are interested in pursuing a career in freelance writing, you definitely do not want to miss this conversation. You're going to take away not only a lot of actionable advice, but you're also going to learn about the 
the the the non glamorous side of things. Everybody thinks freelance writing and you know you think Sex in the City or or things like that, things that make it just look pretty and and fun and super lucrative. But there's there's a lot that comes with it, and this week's guest really breaks that down. So enough of me yammering on. Let's turn it over to this week's guest. My guest for this week's episode of Toys and Tech of the Trade is Terry Huggins. Terry is an award-winning journalist, a freelance writer, also a moderator, uh, a woman with many, many skills that not only uses them to deliver amazing written content on the internet, but also leverages that to her own brand of entrepreneurship and freelancing. We're going to discuss her journey, how she got started, and of course, the toys and tech of her trade. Terry, how's it going? I'm doing well. You know, it's a Saturday morning and I'm just trying to get my mind right with a world of kids and with some certainty in some levels. No, I, I definitely can relate to that. And I think that, you know, as somebody who, as, as I mentioned in our introduction, works in the world of freelance heavily, uncertainty is the name of the game. Yes, yes. And it's something that people don't realize that even after freelancing for 10 years plus, there are still so many things that change all the time, especially now during, you know, the pandemic. Are we still in a pandemic? I believe we are. I'm not Uh, sure. I think we've I think we've shifted from pandemic to pandemic to everything's going to kill us. (laughs) <laughs> yes yes um i did hear that they found polio in yes. the wastewater in yep. new york city and i'm like oh no of course i i had to call my mom and i'm like did i did i get the polio vaccine <laughs> <laughs> mom I, I these are these are the questions that we have to deal with unfortunately and i want to kind of dive into that because as as someone who writes about a variety of different topics how how is this last two years been for you as a content creator? You know, it's been chaotic. I'm I'm not going to lie to you. It's been extremely chaotic. Um right now my lane is really more in the parenting space. I write a lot about parenting, motherhood, mental health, um, and just health in general, especially their intersections with race and culture. However, mm. when I actually first started writing, I was in the bridal industry. And that's really what created most of my income. So for obvious reasons, when the pandemic hit, it was much harder to write for the DJs that I did, the bridal magazines that I wrote for, the event planners, because they weren't planning events, so they didn't have money to pay um, a freelance writer to either write for their websites, their magazines, their marketing content for their businesses. So it's been chaotic. And at that point is when I had to... I don't want to say pivot or shift because I I still write wedding um, material every now and then, but I had to expand. So I expanded more into parenting and health, especially since we were talking about it so much at the time. And it's the center of my life (laughs) in some ways. So it it was chaotic trying to find that balance, trying to make sure I could stay pay, continue to pay my bills because be honest i live in new jersey and it's not a cheap place to no live. it's definitely not i mean it's starting to creep up there just like uh new york city yes definitely uh so it was it, it took a little tweaking you know making sure that i didn't panic and trusting that 
what's for me is already mine. And I think I finally found my lane. I'm very happy writing about parenting topics, um, how we handle our identity as parents, how we raise happy and capable children, and just the, the intersections with different things in life. Well, the thing that's interesting also is that, you know, your, your resume has taken you through so many different areas. I mean, you know, your, your, your professional background you have, you know, from writing to, uh, from writing for a religious institution to doing public speaking to writing about finance to, you know, leveraging, working on social media, ghostwriting. It's, it's, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, you know, you, 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 you were a Zumba instructor. You were all, you, you really ran the gamut of hustle. And the thing about it is you mentioned something that was very, very powerful in the fact that you are doing that and also finding yourself in the process. And one of the things that, you know, made us connect was that, you know, those experiences and the fact that you're trying to have that intersection of acknowledging, you know, the stuff that's going on in the real world and just, putting it on putting it to paper in this case or putting it to word for people to really digest it because a lot of people kind of are walking around in a bubble kind of worried about their own little their own little space and a lot of what's going on in the world in you know conflicts and influences that space yes yes you know i have to stop you because i'm like you're reading out all these things that i've done i'm like wow i have done like everything Mm -hmm. I didn't even realize it, but you're right. I did. But, you know, it's all a process of, you know, finding where you fit in and not just fit in, but where you belong. Because fitting in, I think sometimes is blending in and you don't want to blend in with everybody else. You want to go where you're welcomed. You want to go where you belong, somewhere that you feel like you can be your whole self. And for a lot of people, including myself, it takes a long time. And they're the things that we don't normally talk about because, you know, sometimes we live in a bubble. So as a writer, I, I love to take those experiences and and share the things that people don't necessarily feel comfortable sharing. The things that people think that they are mostly misunderstood for. Um, it really just dawned on me recently that I think one of the reasons why I, I fell into writing And writing about the topics that I do is I often felt like I was misunderstood growing up. And because of that, I put my all into giving the voice, giving a voice, or I don't want to say giving a voice because everybody has a voice, but letting the voices of those who feel misunderstood be heard more strongly and more clearly so they can resonate with the people that they've been trying to reach for so long. I think that leveraging that and going in that direction is one of the things that allows you to maintain a level of authenticity that sometimes is sorely lacking because as we've talked about in, in numerous conversations you and I have had before this podcast, it's there's, there's a level of, Hey, you know, either it's one, it's one extreme, which is everything is terrible. You know, every, everybody's coming to get us. Everything is bad. And then the other extreme is, oh, the world is a rosy place. And, you know, anything that's happening outside of your bubble is is totally okay to ignore. And I think that the more we're aware of 
these different divides, whether it's socially, culturally, and and more so being put down by somebody who's not in an agenda driven space, oh, the, yes. the more it, the more it, it leverages people's emotions and allows them to really be like, man, you know, that's that makes a lot of sense or, oh, I never thought of it that way or, oh, I didn't think about that. But unfortunately, it takes a lot of work. And, I, and you know, interestingly enough, you use the phrase, you know, you fell into writing, which leads me to ask, what did you did you always aspire to be a writer? Like what put you there? So maybe fell into it isn't the right word, but I think maybe falling into the space that I am now okay. is the right. But I've actually always wanted to be a writer. Like, really? Okay. I remember being from 10 years old, from when I was 10, I wrote my very first poem. And I, it was called like, Who Am I? And I don't remember how the poem went exactly. But that was when a teacher pulled me aside and said that was very good. And it just kind of stuck with me. I, I've always wanted to be a writer. I'm one of those strange but fortunate people that actually went to college, studied journalism, you know, studied the thing and actually went out into the world and continues to make a living from that thing. Uh, so I, I, I got lucky in, in some regards. Um, but I think really it stems from, again, just re- realizing that I felt misunderstood. And I think like most children, like most teenagers, in, in some ways, we feel misunderstood. And it just, it resonated with me a lot more. And I think that's really what put me into writing. I, I feel, I think I'm a much better writer than I am speaker, even though I do speak publicly much more now. I, I think I get my points across much better as a writer. Um, so it, it made sense for me as someone who always felt like they're misunderstood to just write out my thoughts. Now, going in, going into this space, especially tackling, um, you know, the, so many, so many diverse issues and, and keeping, keeping your, your brain compartmentalized to, to compartmentalized to cover them all. How did you, how did you juggle a lot of that? Because again, you know, you're, you're somebody that has to do a lot of research. If you're talking about relationships, if you're talking about mental health, if you're talking about race, there's different levels of research that are required. What was your thought process? What is your thought process when you have to put like this kind of content together? What what sort of mindset do you get yourself into? How do you um, structure a lot of that work? That is a very good question. So I'll tell you first how I come up with a lot of my ideas. Um, to be quite honest, I'm just a very curious person. I, I always have been. So I when I am intrigued or curious about something, I start to do a little surface level research to see if other people have the same question. And if they do, then that's how I approach my editor. And I'd say, you know, I'm really curious about how people are navigating the maternal mortality rate and what hospitals are doing about it. And it seems that a lot of people have the same question. Uh, So that's really how I start. It, it really just starts from my from my curiosity, and from that curiosity and searching for other people have the question. I also start diving into seeing what research is available, and what makes it very hard um, about writing about marginalized groups, whether the disabled community, the black and brown communities, is that fortunately marginalized groups there's not always much data on them because as much as much as I hate to say it, for a very long time the marginalized groups were 
forgotten when it comes to studies. So when I approach these topics, I also have to make sure that if I don't have hard research, hard facts, I'm able to get anecdotal um, stories from somebody who can back up the point. And within that story, that's when I say, because data has been lacking in this area, we relied more on personal experiences of X, Y, and Z. Uh, So that's how I approach a story. Now, mentally, because a lot of times they are very heavy topics, I I have to take a lot of breaks. I'll I'll be very honest with that. Really? Yes. I have to take a lot of breaks. It's from writing from the topic. Right. Uh, You know, like, as I mentioned, maternal mortality. I just wrapped up a story on maternal mortality not too long ago. But before that, I took several months off from writing the topic because they are very heavy topics. As a black woman myself, it is not easy to keep writing stories about you're more likely to die from this and you're more likely to get incarcerated from this and you're more likely to mm-hmm. not have insurance because of this. And they're stories that need to be told, but because they hit close to me, I have to step back sometimes from those topics. Um, so I make sure that I, I, I just schedule those breaks. Uh, in addition, I balance it by running my my own newsletter. I do have a newsletter. I'd like to say it's monthly, but it's it's really sporadic at best since the pandemic. But I discuss like uplifting things, things about personal growth, about finding the positive, about giving yourself grace in hard times. So that's how I manage those really heavy topics with, you know, keeping myself sane and not in a depressive state. No, I think I think you know it's. It, it, I'm glad that you broke that down so much because I think a lot of this, a lot of what we consume, people think, oh, you know, mindlessly scrolling on TikTok or mindlessly looking through Instagram, like anything else. You know, there's there's a consumption that's happening that's adjusting our thought process, our, our thought processes, our moods, our feelings, and the funny thing is that when you look at this stuff and this consumption of media the 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 bias that happens sometimes that people pretty much embrace comes from the fact that they're just consuming so much bad news or so much of a certain type of messaging or so much of this or so much of that and the thing is that subtly they right. it starts to change their perception and to, to your point you're writing about something that's that's heartbreaking or that's you know incredibly incredibly personal incredibly powerful i mean you're talking about you know, mortality rates and, you know, death. And it's just like, you you know, by the time you put down, you take your fingers away from the keyboard. You're like, I need to sit outside. I need some sun. I can't, I can't look at this screen. And the thing about it is how do you pull back when you're writing about something, some of these more sensitive topics? I know you give yourself breaks, but let's say you're writing an article and you start like your first draft or your set, you know, you're working on, on that first portion of the piece and it gets a little heavy. What do you do to help you balance yourself out and to kind of get back in that mindset, especially if you're writing about something that's incredibly powerful or or morbid or, or you know, touching even, you know, going on the other side of the spectrum? You know, I have to be completely honest with you. I haven't really had to pull back much. I think really what it is as I'm writing, it's more about diving in because most of the time I'm writing and my two children are home. <laughs> so... For me to sit and be able to write 
for a very long period of time consecutively, it's very hard these days, right. especially in the summer months. So I have to think back to back when there was school <laughs> and that wasn't so much of an issue. I, I do think one thing that helps me and is I schedule my timer for like 10 to 15 minutes. So I would write straight 10 to 15 minutes and then I'll take a break. You know, maybe it's a break just to do deep breathing. Maybe it's a break to go have some sparkling water. Maybe it's a break to go tickle the kids. But um, that that's sort of how it, I break it up. And that's, it was really, it helps what I did to help keep me focused. But I think it's also sort of a defense mechanism for me to not go spiraling into these deep topics. <laughs> so, you know, with the, with that said, you're watching you know, your, your, your children, they, 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 they effectively pull you back in general because they'll come over, mommy, I need this, uh, take me here. I want this. And it's good because in a way they kind of just stop that. They, they stop that creative process for a few minutes and they let you just decompress. Is that, is that right? Yes. And no, sometimes they help me decompress. Sometimes it makes it harder because, you know, I'll be completely honest, since the pandemic, I have struggled a lot with brain fog and lack of focus. Mm. So what's really hard sometimes is that I'd finally get focused in my work and I'm like, okay, I'm doing it. I got the words. I got this. And that's when my oldest would be like, mommy, I need to go potty. Mm-hmm. Or my other would say, hey, I need some water. So it's yes and no. It, it They help break it up. But at the same time, like, man, I just got into my, my, my rhythm. Groove, right. Um, so, which is one of the reasons why I said it's chaotic uh, when we first started. Yep. Um, it, it's definitely been chaotic since 2020, like most people. Absolutely. But, you know. Now, in terms of, in terms of work, let's, you know, going, going back to that chaotic nature, how, how are you approaching just being a freelance writer? Because I'm sure there are a lot of people that have, you know, that have a valuable skill set or know how to how to be very very specific with what they intend to write and they just can't find those outlets to be able to express themselves you know you've run the gamut you know we were talking about yes. it before so mm-hmm. how do you how do you go about like finding those gigs and and getting work i mean that's 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 the short that's the short question you know yes i'm actually glad you asked that question i I actually want to write an, uh, a book on this topic, or if not, an ebook or blog post. But so let me tell you a bit how I started. As I mentioned, I did go to school for journalism, and I was one of those fortunate people that knew they wanted to work in journalism. I also knew that I never wanted to work in a newsroom. I actually always knew I wanted to be a freelancer. That was always the goal, even through college. I was, however, planning to maybe work in a newsroom, maybe for a very short time, just so I, you know, had more experience. So I was able to make connections, etc. However, when I graduated, it was 2009. It was a pandemic or not, not a pandemic, a recession, and nobody was hiring. So I was very fortunate that I had parents who said, you know what, if there's no opportunities, create your opportunities. And that is how I started freelancing. I created my own job by really reaching out. I would send pitches to different publications. Um, As I mentioned, I'm a very curious person. I'd have an idea. 
And at the time I was still doing a lot of um, like relationships and wedding type stories. So I would get a list of the magazines. I'd look in the masthead. And for those who don't know, the masthead is like the first few pages of a magazine, you open it up and you'll see the list of, you know, editor in chief, associate um, editor, managing editor, so on and so forth. And I would send a pitch. Uh, Normally I would send it to a manager editor, managing editor, because they're right in the middle. Editorial assistants are the like entry level. They don't normally handle pitches. Editor in chiefs, they're the ones who delegate everything down. So you want to aim for somebody in the middle. Right. So I would find the person in the middle of the masthead, and then I would look up their email address. The way I got their email address is I'd go to that publication's website. And at the time, I mean, now it's easier to find these email addresses, but at the time, they weren't really publishing email addresses like that. So I would go to the bottom of the website, and there's normally a media kit. And you would click on the advertising link, you know, maybe the advertising calendar. Right. And that's how I would find the email address for whoever the advertising person is. And granted, I was not emailing the advertising person, but that gave me the email format. So then I got the format from that. Then I'd go back to the masthead and I'm like, okay, the managing editor is Kelly Simcoe. The advertising um, email address tells me that the format is first name dot last name at publication.com so that's why i started um getting the contacts and pitching editors um to start working for them um in addition i did a lot of networking i went to a whole lot of networking events i i as i mentioned i live in new jersey i was going into the city a lot because i wanted to hang out where they hung out right i i was going to different like business before breakfast meetings for like the chamber of commerce, um, in my local area. And cause I'm, I'm going to give everybody a little secret. What people don't know is that unfortunately people who work in the media, they actually don't pay very well at all. The money is in the publications you've never heard of. Right. If you know somebody writing for like, I don't know, what's a popular, like, the Huffington Post or like the very well-known publications, there's a very good chance they're not making a lot of money to write for them. If you know anybody who is freelancing and they pay their bills, that is not their sole money maker. You will never survive that way. The real bread and butter is in trade publications. Um, so I mean like podcasts. There's probably a podcast magazine or a podcast website that probably pays very well per article. Wow. Um, or like hairstylist, the trade publications is where the money is at. So really, I would leverage the big name titles, um, you know, like Cosmopolitan at the time, Red Book was um, a magazine then. And I would leverage those, make sure they were all over my, um, my resume, etc. And I would use that to get me gigs at the trade publications that were going to pay me more. Interesting. Now, yeah. now when you, with that said, Let's say, going back to what you're saying about about payment. So let's say you wanted to, I don't know, you wanted to create a residual income of let's say five hundred dollars a month or five hundred dollars every two weeks. How yeah. how would you go about structuring that? Would you need to write for you know hypothetically three publications? Because I know that you're also setting your rates, but you're also dealing with rates that they may they may set. And like you said, sometimes yeah. they don't pay well. So how would you, how would you tackle that? 
Very, very good question. So that's when another subset of writing clients comes in, um, like the, the copywriting for different publications. And that's when I set, or not publications, for different businesses. That's when I set my rates. Right. So when you're writing for like a magazine, whether it's like a prestigious, well-known publication or a trade publication, like you said, they set the rates. Now, there's always room for negotiation. I will say that. Okay. There's always room for negotiation. Whether they will negotiate with you is another question. <laughs> but there's always room for negotiation. That said, when you are writing for like the DJ or the event planner or the doctor, that's when you can set your rates and say, this is how much I charge, you know, for X, Y, and Z. So I'd go back. So let's, again, we'll go back to, I was writing for bridal publications and that's where the industry where I got most of my money at the time. So I was writing for a uh, bridal guide magazine at the time and people in the, in the wedding industry recognized that title from there because of that knowledge in the wedding industry. And I had that prestigious uh, name on my portfolio. I was able to approach DJs and event planners. And really what I would do, I would go to their websites and I'd see if they had a website or webpage that said coming soon or a blog that hadn't been updated since, you know, 2017. And we're now in 2019. And I would email them and I said, hey, I just recognize that you have a blog, but you haven't updated in a while. I love your work. I am a freelance writer and I'd love to help you bring it to light. Kid, would you like to set up a chat? And that's how I got a lot of my work. Um, in addition, another way I would get work and people can use this now too, especially those who want to work from home or they want to get into freelancing. I would go to job ads like marketing. Um, so I'd go to like what indeed.com or wherever they have job posting. Right. And I'd for like the communication manager role or the marketing manager role, things of that nature. And then I would email the hiring manager or maybe the manager in that department. And I'd say, Hey, I saw you had an opening for a communications manager. I'm not looking for a full time right now. I'm a happy freelancer. However, I can imagine that you have some work that has not been done. I would love to help you complete X, Y, and Z while you search for a full-time employee. Wow. And that's how I got some work. And people can do that now, too. That's a, that's a hell of a hack. Yes. And sometimes it works. Sometimes it didn't. Right. It was, it, it's what got me in. That, that's how I, was, how I was able to make a living. Now, in terms of, in terms of that, and I'm glad you... You, you went right into that aspect. How do you stop your content from becoming, how, from being reflective of your tone? You know how sometimes, like, let's say you're writing for a finance, you can't really, or a, a finance blog or, or a finance publication, you don't, you want the article to be very neutral. How do you control an article getting a sprinkling of your personality? Because we all have uh, a style that we write in. That sometimes it's conversational, sometimes it's more um, more centered to who we are culturally. How do you how do you balance that? Because like anything else, you know, you want you want a little bit of your identity in there, but sometimes you can't. You know, that's a really good question, and I think really 
you you want to make sure you have a variety of clients. You know, it's one reason why I also write personal essays, because that is me <laughs> completely, regardless of what publication I'm writing for. That is my personality. Um, however, there's ways to and you know, let me back up. I want to remind everybody, in addition to just freelance writing, I am a journalist. So as a journalist, you do have to be biased right. and be aware of the words that you use. Like there's a lot of words that we don't realize carry um like that are very suggestive. Like for example, you could be writing something saying he only has five jobs, or you could say he has five jobs. Once you put in the word only, it, it sort of projects um like an emotion, a feeling, a judgment. And that's something that you have to be aware of as a journalist. Wow. There, you know, or as a journalist, if you're writing like an actual journalistic article, you will never see, or you shouldn't see someone quote somebody and it says like, she exclaimed or she yelled. The reason why is because that is your perception. Whether that person exclaimed or they yelled or whatever, that's how you perceive it. It's always going to be she said or he said because they did say it. Once you say, oh, well, this person screamed that he loves ice cream. Well, did he scream or did you perceive it as screaming? I think he said he loves ice cream. Huh. <laughs> That's, you know, I, I love I love that. And I'll tell you why. Because we live in a culture where we rely on written word for communication. And unfortunately, we read it in our own inflection, meaning like text messaging. Someone will text message you and say, hey, Terry, I can't make dinner today. Sorry, I got other plans. So you read that and you're like, oh, what the hell? This person has other plans. Like they could have at least called me. Why'd they send the text? You see what I mean? Like you're reading it exactly in, mm -hmm. in, in an emotional state that's indicative of how you're feeling. Like the person could have just typed it out or or dictated it to Siri or, or whatever. And it just came out that way, but you're reading it and you're adding, you're sprinkling your own emotion in there. That's very, that's, that's very good to know because I'm sure, I mean, I've, even though, even though I've covered like gaming and, and collectibles and things for so long, I always write them from the perspective of, you know, who's your, who is your ideal reader? Who is your muse? Who's your ideal listener? Much like podcasting. And a lot of times I just say, you know, I'm creating stuff for me that I want people that think like me or feel like me to enjoy. Yes. And sometimes that's not the right solution, because like you said, if you put he only has five jobs, you're putting a, a limit on that or you're dismissing the fact that he has five jobs, period. You're like, oh, he only has five jobs. Somebody's going to read that and go. But why is only five jobs bad? Exactly. Exactly. It's that stuff. And I mean, I think I know we've shifted away from your original question. No, 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 not at all. Be on the contrary, we took a deeper we took a deeper dive in because I think that a lot of people romanticize the freelance life. And the thing about it is that it has a unique set of challenges because you're yeah. constantly a chameleon adapting to every environment you're writing. in. if you're writing about uh, relationships on Monday, and then you got to write about um, political discourse on Wednesday, and then you have to write about mental health on Saturday. Like those yes. require different thought process and different mindsets. They really do, and the words and they, matter. Yes, they they really do matter. 
And it really is being a chameleon and finding that balance. Because here's the other aspect of it. People think being a freelancer means doing just everything that you want. And in some ways, yes, it is, because I do have the power to say, I'm not going to do that. I'm not writing that. I'm not going to sign that contract. However, at the end of the day, I have children to feed. I mm-hmm. have to pay my bills. I need to pay for the roof over my head. So yes, there are going to be things that you take on. And it is very easy to get burned out freelancing. And I've been there before. I have. And what I found that helps is you need to find a balance between having a passion project and those projects that make money. Because unfortunately, sometimes those passion projects are the ones that don't really pay the most. So you don't want to always feel like you're chasing money. You need to have a balance. But if you're only doing those that chase money, unfortunately, sometimes they're the ones that aren't the most, uh, they, they don't necessarily always light a fire under your butt. They don't, they don't always get you excited. So you need to have that balance between the, the money-making projects and the joy-making the George creating projects. And that's really what's important. Um, and something else that I'm learning now, and I wish I had learned this much sooner, is that even in freelancing, we need to find passive income, even in freelancing. And I'm in the process of trying to figure that out now. Because as a creative, and I'm sure you know this as well, when you are a creative, your entire how you make a living should not be solely reliant on that because mm-hmm. no matter how good you are, no matter how innovative you are, it is very difficult to always come up with unique ideas. And if your living is reliant on your ability to always come up with great ideas, at some point you're going to be mentally drained. At some point you're going to get burnt out. At some point the ideas are going to stop coming. And then you're like, great, the ideas aren't coming. Now the money's not coming. Now right. the bills aren't getting paid. Um, so I'm actually in the process of trying to find, you know, a way that I have more passive income that I can continue to freelance. However, even if I stop coming up with great ideas, even if my curiosity does not really spark as many articles as I'd like, I still have money coming in. Because I think now we're, we're starting to realize that honestly, owning a home is not the American dream. Having passive income, multiple streams of income is the American dream. Absolutely. Now. Tell me, tell me about a time when you had to work on an assignment and after taking the assignment, you realized that you shouldn't do it or it wasn't for you. Oh, that is a good one. Uh, let me think for a minute because I, I know it's happened multiple times. Um, but as I think about it, I'll tell you, in general, I realize an assignment isn't for me right away. And then sometimes I go against my my gut because mm. I... I feel like I need the money. Right. <laughs> no, no. And, that's, and I want I want people to know that because going back to what you said before, sometimes bills got to get paid. Sacrifices mm-hmm. have to be made. But like anything else, we all have those those hard lines in the sand for certain yes. things. And I'm sure you've come across where you're like, oh, this assignment looks good. Then you're take a deeper dive and you're like, eh, maybe not. Yes. So really, you could always tell sometimes the beginning with how that potential client, whether it's um, a business owner or an editor, sort of what your communication is like from the very beginning. There are some people that you you just connect with right away. And then there are some people that you really they're pushing back on, you know, for every little thing. And even though you realize that they may not be the easiest person to work with, and it may not even be their fault, you just may not connect with that person. 
right. even if you realize that, sometimes you still end up taking it, thinking, oh, you know what? It's not going to be that bad. Oh, you know, I really need the money, so I'm going to do it. And then as you go deeper and deeper, you're like, damn, I, I should have went with my gut. This was not worth it. <laughs> so that that just happened. I've gotten much better with just saying no and when something doesn't feel right. And okay. just trusting, you know, like I said before, what's for me is already mine. I say no to this. That's because something better is on the way. Gotcha. So looking looking at that and, and go, you know, just scratching the surface a little more, you know, talk to me about criticism, because, again, you're submitting an article. It has to go through somebody. How does how do you how do you handle that sometimes when, you know, you give it to an editor and you're like and they're like, oh, well, you know, we kind of wanted this. How do you personally handle that, especially if you are, so you know, you do all the research, you put something together, you're like, damn, this is a this is a five star piece. And then somebody comes back, oh, you could change this. How do you how have you um, disciplined yourself with regards to uh, criticism? Right. Yes. Criticism is it's, it definitely comes with the territory and there's there's a lot of it. And most of it is constructive, really, especially when it comes from an editor. And that's the number one thing I have to remind myself of. It's constructive, um, especially now. You know, yes, there's still magazines and newspapers out, but let's be honest, everything lives online now. Mm -hmm. So when an editor maybe sometimes changes a headline or changes this, I also remind myself that this editor is protecting me because my name is on this work and they know that the internet world out there, they are not forgiving. No. So I also, I remind myself like, look, this is the editor protecting me from, from people coming after me for whatever I said. Uh, so that's one aspect. Number two, I also remind myself that writing and editing are two different processes. Writing is the creative. Editing is the more structural, the more logical part of it. It's it's making sure that you're answering the questions. It's making sure that whatever you set out to do with this story was actually done. I mean, you can write an article about, you know, food diaries. But if what you turned in ends up being more about the different food pyramid, you have to go back and like, all right, did I answer the question? And that's when the editing comes in. And you're like, OK, I didn't really answer this question. So I'm going to take this out, replace that line, et cetera. Um, Finally, what really helps me with the criticism is reminding myself that the original that maybe I fell in love with will always live on in my hard drive. I could go ahead and edit it, you know, to whatever they like. And maybe they took out my one favorite sentence that I like it just it melted me and it's what kept me going. And for whatever reason, it didn't make it in the final cut. It's OK. It lives on in my Google Docs. Whenever I want to read it, I'll go back <laughs> and read it that way. There you go. Yeah. Um, also, this is something else that I, I had to realize. One editor's opinion or one business owner's opinion, et cetera, is not the only opinion. And I made this realization when, you know, as a freelancer, I write for several publications and I formed great relationships with some of them. And there was one story in particular that I remember I was being nervous about. I was very nervous about it. And I gave it to this one. And I'm like, hey, do you mind just reading this over before I submit it? She said, sure. She read it. She, you know, gave me great feedback, et cetera. And then I gave it to the other editor and was very interesting. 
is that they both loved and didn't love different things. And it was a reminder that one person's thought is not is not the only thought. Right. It's not universal. Yes, it's not universal. So there, there's that. It's it's okay. That, so that person didn't love your work, somebody else will. That's <laughs> in a in an era of comments, you know, on on content online. Have you ever written for a piece and that has comments and then you go back and you see what people are saying? Yes. Yes, and I don't do it anymore. <laughs> that I'm I see that's where I was going. I I remember I remember when I started like doing more things with YouTube, etc. And people were like, don't read the comments. Don't read them. Like maybe read one or two, but don't read them or just read them on a different day because sometimes they will, they will obliterate your entire day. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, there, there were two that I wrote and two personal essays. And after that, I stopped reading. Yep. One um, was actually, they were both race related. Mm, of course. And there were, both for Parents uh, Magazine. The first one, it was, I don't remember the exact headline. It, w- it was something like, I'm black, pregnant, and I'm afraid I'm going to die during birth. Mm. Um, I was pregnant with my second son. And, you know, as I said, I was afraid I was going to die. I, I was so terrified that I, I had planned out my funeral. I had written out a will. And my family didn't know this. I had put everything in a document and I like printed out that way. If that was my time, that they wouldn't have to worry about everything. It, it's all sit And honestly, we should all have that done to be. <laughs> I agree. I agree 100%. We should all have that done. But for me, delivering my second son is what made me do that. And nobody knew I was doing it, but I was terrified. Um, and the story was just discussing how more likely you are to die as a black woman. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it went, it worked out fine. I'm here. My youngest son is now three. And everybody's fine. So I'm happy about that. But I got so many comments on that article saying that, well, everybody's scared during birth. Of course, you're going to bring race into it. And, you know, all this stuff. You're you're just privileged. You're a snowflake. You're a liberal. And it, it was a whole bunch of stuff. So that was one. I didn't even respond to any of them. Nope. But I saw um, the other one, another race-related story. It was discussing why I never wanted to have boys and not because I had any particular problem with having boys, but as a black woman raising black boys in this world, Mm -hmm. my heart could not take it. I always said my heart can't handle raising black children in this America. I just can't. For some reason, (laughs) the universe decided that I can (laughs) handle raising black children because I didn't just have one. I got two boys. Iron sharpens iron. Yes. Um, but the story was talking about that, how little black boys, they're, they're cute until they're not, until they, they become a threat. And unfortunately, they're, they're viewed as a threat very early. I mean, for some, it starts as young as five and, and earlier. It's, and it's it was, very interesting you, you brought that up because that comment, that the exact wording came up re- not too long ago. Somebody posted it on. I believe it was a creator on TikTok. And when they said that, I was like, wow, that was super powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and the story had facts. You know, it had facts, you know, discussing just that, that black boys are criminalized much sooner than, you know, other children. They and because of that, they it, it's this the school to prison pipeline. And it sounds extreme, but it, it's true. And, they, you know, there are facts to back it up. 
Um, it was discussing how I did not want to raise my children that they couldn't be who they were, mm. you know, making them feel like they couldn't wear their hair that they wanted, like whether they wanted braids or, you know, a shortcut or they, they had to hide parts of themselves just to survive or, you know, just to have a shot. Like I, I was afraid of that. Um, the comments on that story, whew, they were rough. I was called a whole bunch of things. People were saying I was a horrible mother. People were saying that, of course, they're going to see only race if that's all their mom talks about. Mm. And, and, you know, what's really interesting, this was written before um, I think a lot of people had their awakening of, of George Floyd's death. Right. So I'm kind of curious if that story would have been received differently <laughs> if I had written it after that. You know, the late, the late Patrice O'Neill, he was a stand-up comedian. Um, brilliant. Incredibly brilliant. He was just like, listen, People sometimes need to be aware that you can. it's okay to wear your shittiness on your sleeve. And he said it in the sense that, listen, if you feel a certain way about a demographic or, or a culture or whatever, then be transparent with that, but also be opening to learning about that. Yes. Because that's what's going to change or change or reinforce your ideologies. And listen. I know plenty of people, they, they assume one thing, then they learn another. And then all of a sudden, like you just said, it's an awakening and there should be no harm in that. I think that the problem is that people, people kind of, they, they look at certain things and they just kind of stick to it because that's what they grew up with or that's what they know, or that's what they, that's what they hear. And what people don't understand, and you know, this is, this will kind of, take a, a curve for some folks is that when you're a minority in any part of this country, there's a different set of rules that are existent and sometimes they're acknowledged in microaggressions. Exactly. And people just, they don't realize that like, I, I oh, you know, I, the, oh, growing up, like, especially like in, in Hispanic households, oh, you have that good hair. Oh, yes. I heard that, too. See? See what I mean? But you hear that and you're a kid or whatever. You got that good hair or whatever. That's a that's a thing. But it's a thing because people are acknowledging it as such. And then it just becomes vernacular comes. It becomes acceptable. And the thing is, it's like that's a microaggression or here's a here's a great one. Oh, you're one of the good ones. Oh, yes. You're one of the good ones is another one. And, you know. Growing up, I mean, I'm an 80s baby, so, you know, you hear that stuff and you're like, oh, okay. Like, you don't really think about it. And then you understand it when you get older and you're like, oh, okay, that's a, that's a little weird. Yeah. And the thing I've about it is... I've heard a whole story about that. Before, that's what too. I mean. People, people, don't, people don't realize that minorities, and, and I'm being completely generalized in this because I can't sit here and put myself in everybody else's shoes. But what I tell people is, you can't walk everyone's shoes, but you have to be comfortable trying them on. Yes. And you have to be aware that 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 there's other stuff going on out there. And yeah, a social uh, a certain economic class may not face it more than others, but there's even levels to that because there's you know, people that are complaining about gentrification that are people of color that live in a neighborhood of color. That want the, that want that lower class pushed out because they feel that lower class is 
leading to the downfall of how they live. Mm-hmm. And people don't want to hear that. And it's like, listen, that that's a thing. Colorism is a thing. It is. It is. It's a scary, it's a scary concept. And the thing about it is that people, they don't, they don't take the time to, to think about that objectively, because again, it's not in my backyard. So right. since it's not in my backyard, it's not my problem. But then all of a sudden, when it, when it manifests itself or it touches you in a certain way, all of a sudden it's a thing. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And I, I think it really proves, you know, I see this all the time. Um, a little tangent. One thing as a mother that I've noticed, or really anything, anything happens to them. You always see people commenting on social media. Why is nobody talking about this? This is a problem, et cetera. And I'm like, no, if you do a quick Google search, you will find that hundreds upon thousands of people have written about the topic. The problem is that you didn't care until it affected you. Exactly. It, well, you know, it's, it's, it's the funny thing about um, us living in, in New York and New Jersey. It's like, oh, there's an uptick in crime. It's like there might be, but there's also an uptick in, sh- in showcasing that crime to drive a certain narrative. Exactly. Like people, people been getting robbed forever. People now are just getting robbed, and more people are documenting it. You know, yes. people are shot. Dry, live in the projects for a year. People get shot on the regular. Not every news story is about the shooting in the projects. Exactly. It's, it's that but- simple. But now it's like, hey, we got to talk about this shooting in the projects, and that's the Monday story. Oh, there was another shooting over there in Brownsville. That's another story. By the time you get to Thursday, you've heard about 12 shootings. And it's like, did you know that there were probably 24 shootings, but 12 of them were the ones that were deemed newsworthy? Exactly. Mm-hmm. It's a scary, it's a scary, it's a scary thing. And I know that we could probably wax poetic about that. And I don't, I want to be respectful of your time. So I want to um, pivot a little bit into what, what we like to call the hot seat. And it's a series of rapid fire questions, just different things based on the conversation we've had. And, um, obviously you kind of outlined one, which is, you know, how do you, how do you write? Are you a Microsoft word person or, 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 you know, something else? And you acknowledge that you use Google docs. And I think obviously one of the, one of the things is the safety net of being able to write anywhere, right? Mm Mm-hmm. You know what? It's funny. I'm able to write anywhere, but I don't write everywhere because I'm also trying to make sure that I have balance between work and time. So I don't even have Google Docs on my phone or Google Sheets on my phone because when I'm with, you know, if I'm out with my family, I want to be out with my family. There you go. So it's a pro and con. Now, one of the funny things with that is do you give yourself a dedicated place in your home? Like, hey, I want to write by the window today or I want to sit in the dining room. Do you have a dedicated workspace that you feel is more conducive to your creativity? I have a dedicated workspace. Do I use it? (laughs) Is the question. I find myself writing in my bed most of the time, but that's because it's easier for me to lock the door when my husband is home to keep the kids away. I do find that the best place that actually helps me with work is sitting by a window. Uh, But that also leaves me out in the open with children. So if they're not (laughs) home, I sit at this one table by, by the window. Some reason the desk doesn't really get used. <laughs> what are, but but obviously besides Google Docs, what's your most used program on your laptop or desktop? 
besides Google, honestly, my calendar, the calendar is the most used um, Google Sheets or Excel. I'm old school right now with um, figuring like this sheet, keeping track of what stories I'm writing, their pay rates, when it's due, et cetera. Uh, so right now I use Excel or, or Google do- or Google Sheets for that. Okay. And yeah. What's um What's the first place you go to when you open your phone? Oh, the first place I go to is Headspace. Really? It, yes, it is. Well, I mean, I guess if we want to be really literal, it's turning my alarm off. Right. <laughs> but then I go to Headspace. I started meditating in the morning. And it has helped me tremendously with brain fog, um, trying to stay focused, finding peace and balance. I, I was doing it in the beginning of the pandemic. And then I actually stopped because I was trying to save money, honestly, because right. it's like 14 something per month. Uh, but then I realized that I was having difficulty again. And I'm like, you know what? It was probably because I stopped meditating with Headspace. Some things are just worth the money. Right. <laughs> and and when it comes to health, health is wealth. So absolutely. Exactly. So now I'm paying for it again and I meditate in the morning. Five AM. Nice. What's your favorite piece of tech besides your phone or computer? My favorite piece of tech. So it's actually actually I don't know if you consider it tech. It's a light. I don't know if you like an LED light. So uh-huh. this isn't really tech, but I started talking about it, so I'll tell you. <laughs> So I also pole dance. I used to be a pole dance instructor. Really? And yes. Look yes. At that. I used to be new. a pole dance instructor. <laughs> and I stopped actually when I gave birth to my second son. I was even pole dancing when I was pregnant with him. Wow. But in our garage, we have a pole. And I like to think of it as like my dance studio in a way. Like that's where I do my pole dancing. I do my Zumba, my workout. And my husband got me this LED light that says Terry. And we put it on the wall. So it's like my space because he's like, you know, so you have your name and lights when you come out here. So that's cool. No, that's that's a that's a great piece of that's a great piece of tech. And I say this because it keeps you focused and that becomes your space. And sometimes you need that extra reassurance to just get through that workout. Yes, I do. It's, It's definitely my space. My kids call it mommy's house. The rest of the house is daddy's apparently, but the the garage is mommy's house. (laughs) Do you listen to music when you write? No, no. When I write, I realize I need as few distractions as possible. I need to be in silence by myself. Nice. What was the last book you read? What is the name? So the last book I finished writing or writing, reading was We Should All Be Rich. It's by okay. Rachel something. I don't remember her last name. Um, where is the that's the last book I finished reading. I'm reading a new book now and I can't remember the name of it, but it's by this couple rich and regular. I like to read a lot of personal finance books um mm. about wealth and like personal growth. What is the name of their book? It's gonna bother me because it's actually really good so far. Um, it is called cashing out. Okay. So I just started that. So, I mean, I'm only a few, like a couple chapters in, but it's very good so far. Do you prefer to read a physical book or an ebook? I like to read physical books. Nice. I'm sure you have a, a, a very impressive bookshelf then, especially being a writer. 
I actually don't anymore. I go to really? the library because it ends up, you know, I was buying so many books and they just, I don't have a space for all of them. So I just go to the library now and it makes me finish a book <laughs> on that That's one. Good. That's a good hack actually, because I never even thought of it that way because it's true. You, you get a book out of the library. It's like, listen, you got to get it back because you got to pay the late fees. So let me re- get to reading it. Yeah. And if I get a, if I get a book from the library that I really love and I, you know, then I'd go out and buy it. Cause I know I'll probably read it again. Okay. Uh, but I don't, you know, I got to control my clutter somehow. So <laughs> nice. that, 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 that's a good, that's a good trick. Um, what's something that you purchased recently? That's less than a hundred dollars that made your life either easier or just more enjoyable. Something that I purchased recently. That's less than a hundred dollars. That's made my life easier. Oh, something that made that made my life easier. So there's I think it's like it varies in price, but there's this thing called MC squares. Okay, they are they call them reusable post-it notes. Really? They were actually on Shark Tank. And I found myself having trouble like looking at reminders and things on my phone or my schedule, like my planner. So I put things in my planner, but then I have like these remote remove reusable post-it notes that I put on my closet door and it has like my whole calendar, my whole schedule on the closet door. That way every morning I get dressed, I have to look at it. I can't avoid it. And you could just rewrite it all the time. It's, it's made my life so much more easier. I know what I'm doing like the day ahead. I absolutely love it. Um, MC squares, like I said, they're on shark tank. It's, they're good. And they have different types. They have um, like calendars. They have to-do lists. They have like this meal plan thing that you could just stick on your refrigerator. Oh, that's outstanding. Yes. That has definitely made my life easier. Nice. Obviously, you know, we, it's toys and tech. I got to talk about toys to a point. But, in, you know, what was your favorite toy growing up? My favorite toy? I got to say it was like two, like, what was it? Either a Barbie doll or like the those nano pets or the Gigi. Oh yeah, like Tamagotchi, Giga yes, pets. Yeah, I remember things. those. Yeah, yeah. I had it. I loved that thing. I remember when it died. I was very sad. Oh man. Um. What was the last toy you bought your kids? The last toy I bought my kids. You know, they both just had birthdays. So let me think what I bought for their birthdays. Oh, so for my youngest son, who's three, he got this fish thing i wish i knew what it's called i think it's like a fisher price fish toy and it comes with these it's like an electronic fishing pole and it talks so it's like find me the red fish and with a magnet you have to lower and get the red fish and it tells you you're right and then with different levels you know you cert like it tells you well you found a starfish so you could adjust the um like the levels like for age etc so that was for one son for my oldest son, he got Osmos for his birthday. Okay. That's I'll be pretty honest, awesome. He, he has not used it yet. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think when you get to a point, there's a point where your kid goes through a point where you buy stuff, they're into it for like a week, and you're like, why'd I buy this? That's, yes. where, that's where eBay comes into effect. <laughs> like this I'm goes still right waiting on eBay. for him to use it because this Osmo thing was not cheap. Mm. So <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Um what was something you've changed your mind on in the last 12 months? Ooh, very good question. I had this conversation with my husband just recently. 
something I changed my mind on in the last 12 months um, was actually owning a house. And so I don't, we rent right now. And honestly, I still currently don't want to own a house. However, I'm also realizing that as my parents get older, there's a possibility that I actually may need to buy a house to have them live with us and take care of them. Uh, so that's something that I changed my mind on. What's a business milestone you are proud of? A business milestone I'm proud of? Huh. Let's see. It sounds really corny, but, and I don't know if I call it a milestone, but I was actually really proud or happy when I was verified on Twitter. Um, oh yeah. Hell yeah. That's, that's a great, yeah. that's a great milestone. Yeah, you know, because I always tell myself I don't need social media to, you know, to validate me. I'm like, look, I was verified before that. But it was still very, um, (laughs) it's an exciting moment. I'm sure. Um, What is something you splurge on when it comes to business or personal development? So I'm going to answer your question. It is related, but not related. My splurge is actually having somebody come clean my home. Um, because that helps me personally and professionally. Yep. No, no harm in that. Yeah. So it's, it's related, but not related. No, I think, I think it's important because if you have a clean space and you have a, you know, you have a a clean space, clean conscience. Yes. Yes. It makes a world of difference. I can't, I can't even begin to describe. I can work better. And my kids are hilarious because they, they'd come home like, the house is clean now. I'm like, that's the kids that make it necessary. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Um, what's a myth that you that was dispelled when you started freelance writing? A myth? Oh, that everybody is rich. Mm-hmm. I mean, honestly, you know, you see things like Sex in the City yep. or um, like Confessions of a Shopaholic, like all those movies and TV shows that focus on journalism. I will tell you right now, most of the journalists that you know are probably broke if that's all they're doing. It is very rare to find any writer who makes, uh, as a journalist, who makes all of their income from journalism. They are most likely either writing, you know, content marketing. They're either, you know, influencers in addition, they're speakers in addition, but you will very rarely find somebody who is making a very good living just doing journalism. What's the last thing you had to look up on YouTube? The last thing I had to look up on YouTube. Oh, you know, Gracie's Corner. What is that? Oh, my God. It is this amazing. (laughs) It's funny. I'm calling it amazing. It's a kid's channel. They make songs. Like, you know how, like, there's always, like, little kid songs. Yeah, like Coco Melon. (laughs) Yeah, it's like Coco Melon. Gracie's Corner is amazing oh, because no, they, they they're like a uh, hip hop trap like kids me they they have like the wheels on the bus but it's like this rap cool version nice <laughs> that good to know as as a parent see, yes, this, the, that, so that question is clutch um what's something that brings a smile to your face every day oh very easy honestly just being me i it it sounds corny i know but I'm very proud that I stand firmly and having I, an identity that's separate from being a wife and a mother and, you know, a career person. The fact that I 
I'm able to do that and still find who I am and be proud of what I am, regardless of what I can do for other people, makes me happy and makes me smile. What makes you laugh easily? Oh, my children. (laughs) (laughs) The things that they say are hilarious. Oh, I get it. (laughs) What's your favorite fictional character? Oh, my favorite fictional character. Hmm. What do I think? Like from TV or anywhere? Literary, television, movie. Oh, man, that's a good question. My favorite fictional character. Hmm. I'm trying to think of like what I've been watching lately <laughs> that helped me with this question. What was my favorite TV show? I mean, really, the only thing that comes to mind is like Brandy's role in Cinderella. And I, I can't even say she's my favorite, but I always loved her role in the movie. So. <laughs> I, you know, it's funny because I remember it. I remember, I think, my sister watching it, and I totally forgot that she did play Cinderella. I forgot all about that. Yeah. Nice. And um, the last one to wrap things up in this particular topic what's a piece of professional advice that you receive that you use daily? Oh, one thing that I received, and I wish I could credit this person, but once person told me, and or not i think i heard it on a podcast or something but the advice was that when you take on freelance requirements you or assignments you want to make sure that they could check off at least two of the three p's passion pay prestige wow because it's it's very rare that you find any assignment that checks off three boxes so you may find an assignment that maybe pays really well you may not care about the topic that much, but it's for a prestigious publication, like maybe the New York Times or Washington Post, or it may pay crappy, but it's a passion. It's a project that you feel really passionate about. If you cannot check off at least three of those boxes, it's probably not worth taking on. Outstanding. Or at least two of those boxes, we'll say. All right. That's going to wrap up the hot seat. And our, our last segment is Reach One, Teach One. It's one last piece of actionable advice we like to give our listeners before we wrap things up. Um, usually we frame it differently for every, every person, but I'm going to give you a good one. You are, you're asked to speak in front of a group of high school seniors and they're about to all consider embarking on a career in freelance writing. What's a piece of advice you'd give them before they graduate? Oh, that is a very good question. You know, one thing that I tell everybody all the time. And I've, I think I've said it multiple times here, actually, since we've been speaking, is that no matter what you do and where life takes you, remember that's what's for you is always yours. You know, there's a lot of uncertainty when you graduate and go into journalism at that. And there's going to be a lot of opportunities that don't work out. There will be opportunities that do work out, but then they may end you know, sooner than you'd like. And when that happens, I just say, you know what? It just wasn't for me. I'm going to trust that what's for me is out there. And that's what I tell everybody also. What's for you is already yours. All right. You've shared some amazing stories, some great toys, some great tech. Where can people connect with you? That's great. So I already mentioned Twitter. I am on Twitter as Terrific Words. Um, my website, terrificwords.com. I'm also on LinkedIn. 
Uh, but I spend most of my time on Twitter and I always encourage anybody, honestly, if they need any help breaking into freelance writing, I, I love helping people. It's a very difficult industry. So whenever anybody reaches out for advice, I'm always happy to either point them in a direction, tell them a resource that could help them out, um, et cetera. So if anybody wants to email me, my email is on my website, so you can reach out or, you know, DM me on Twitter, but I, I love helping people in this space because it's, it's just tough. Outstanding. And with that, Terry, thank you so much for taking the time to share the toys and tech of your trade. If you're looking to get into freelance writing, I hope our conversation with Terry was educational and informative. Or if you're even thinking about getting into a career in freelance writing, definitely take a lot of the tips that Terry provided and apply them because I I just feel that She's lived it so she knows firsthand what works and what doesn't. And by all means, feel free to reach out and let her know you heard her on the podcast. And I'm sure she will be glad to hear from you. Links to everything we discussed in this episode will be in the show notes. As always, full disclosure, some of those items may contain affiliate links, which if you click and use one of those links, will receive a small commission at no additional cost to you that goes towards making this podcast and everything put out by RageWorks better for you, the listener, the viewer, or the reader, depending on how you're consuming our content. As always, if you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment and review it on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or the podcast platform of your choice. Reviews are great currency to get more guests. So if you got a second or two and you want to write a couple of words, that would really be appreciated. Last but not least, if you want to connect with us, you can pretty much find RageWorks everywhere. So feel free to Look on any social media platform of your choice, punch in RageWorks, and more than likely we'll be there. And it's either going to be myself or someone on the team that will be running the account, but don't hesitate to reach out and, of course, say hello. If you're interested in being a guest on a future episode of Toys and Tech of the Trade, you can email me rich at rageworks.net or fill out the contact form on the site, which not only allows you to be a guest on the Toys and Tech of the Trade podcast, but any of the other great shows on the RageWorks podcast network as well all right that's going to wrap it up for this week thank you guys for listening as always we truly appreciate the support and we'll see you in the next one peace
Toys and Tech of the Trade is part of the Rageworks Podcast Network, your source for rants about gaming, entertainment, and the works. Visit us at RageworksNetwork.com.